Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Telegraph. Podcasts. It's not true that the government is out of the kindness of its heart giving people money. There's a lot of covering up the damage. I think lockdown has been prolonged precisely because there hasn't been a real-world economic constraint there. I'm sure the Dowager Council would want to roll up her sleeves and say we want to be part of the Build Back Better. It doesn't work to keep printing money effectively creating money to buy up effectively your own debt. One. We have left off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. The data's moving in the right direction and fast. The number of UK COVID cases is down 29% over the last week. Hospitalizations are 22% lower and daily deaths from, with or related to COVID have dropped 36% over the last seven days. Britain's vaccinated almost a third of our population at least once, well over four times more than our EU neighbours. The roadmap out of lockdown will be driven by data, not dates, said Boris Johnson. Well, the data, Alison, on cases, deaths, vaccination take-up is now massively outperforming. The pressure to unlock sooner is mounting, not least given the economic carnage we just heard about in Rishi Sunak's budget. Ultra-caution starting to look reckless and expensive, given the huge economic costs of lockdown in terms of lost growth and spiralling debts. But Alison, it's fine. We've got the Bank of England's magic money tree. <laughs> What's another trillion pounds of borrowing among friends? I need to get that fiver back off you, Halligan, while we're... <laughs> Well, we're talking about significant debt. Well, can I just say to listeners that it's a huge privilege to have on the rocket today one of the UK's leading economics commentators and co-pilot Halligan will also be chipping in to help me <laughs> as I guide you. Well, you know what they say, Liam, better to give than receive. And, and boy, is Rishi taken that to heart today. I mean, there he was, whatever it takes. So it was, you know, 25 billion over here, another 65 billion over here. I thought it was a great performance in many ways, but I was actually thinking, what's this got to do, A, with the Conservative government? And what the hell is he playing at extending furlough until September? As, as far as we know, September is three months after all the legal restrictions are lifted on June the 21st. And furlough, Liam, costs the UK 14 billion quid a month. So even my maths tells me that that's another 70 billion gone on what? Five million people will have been off work for 18 months, paid 80% of their salaries. Absolutely staggering. And, the, and Rishi says the government are proud of the furlough scheme, the most generous in the world, because they're protecting people's jobs. My first question to you, economics expert, is surely people are more likely to keep their jobs if businesses are open? I think that's true. Furloughing won't be quite as expensive because there are fewer people on furlough now, but there's still upwards of four million. So it will cost a pretty penny. You're right, Alison, the numbers involved are absolutely huge. We're borrowing 354 billion quid in this fiscal year, the government is. A year ago, when he launched his budget in March 2020, Rishi Sunak says, I'm announcing today a 30 billion fiscal boost to support British people mm -hmm. during this pandemic. The OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, has confirmed this is the largest sustained rise in 30 years. Well, it turns out 30 billion was small beer because it was actually 354 billion, 11 times more. And then there's another 234 billion of borrowing to come in the next fiscal year, starting in April. These are absolutely massive 
numbers. We can talk about some of the specifics in the budget, but、mm. the big picture for me, as I outlined in our introduction, there is that so much of this rests on government borrowing, basically from the Bank of England, from the magic money tree, and get this, Alison. The words quantitative easing. Oh, here、QE. we go. Here we go.、Yeah. How many times did they appear in the budget document? How many times? I don't know any at all. Twice. Both times in footnotes、yeah. and not in Rishi Sunak's budget speech at all, and that's the big problem I have with this. My problem isn't that he's moving to support the economy during lockdown. We can talk about the efficacy of lockdown and how long it should be going on for,、mm. and of course we touch on that on Planet Normal regularly. That is a completely valid debate to have. But my problem isn't that he's supporting the British economy through this. To whatever extent he is, my problem is that he's not being open and honest with the public and financial markets about how this support is happening, and all this support is happening because the government is basically borrowing from the Bank of England in an unsustainable way. He's not levelling with us or the world as a whole about that, and my fear is that that lack of transparency will come back to bite us. I think it's very hard for normal, non-Halligan-type brains to to really understand this. I mean, you'll notice that throughout the speech, Rishi did keep saying, "Due to the damage that coronavirus has done to our economy," and every time he said coronavirus, I whispered lockdown because we know that this is has arisen, hasn't it, from the economy put it being put in an induced coma. So, to some extent, there has been an element of choice about that. Not back at the beginning. But you could argue, latterly, there's a lot more choice about unlocking. We'll we'll talk about some of the the figures later about how the prevalence of the virus has gone down drastically in the thing. Oh, by the way, I got my letter today, my vaccine letter. Oh, brilliant! So we'll talk a bit about that. I'll let you know about that. So just coming back to this Bank of England thing, national debt now over three trillion, as you said. No, it's it's heading for. It's not there yet. It's about two point one trillion, but it's heading、right. for three trillion. <laughs> <laughs> three trillion. I don't think I can even write that down as a number. It's three followed by twelve zeros. It's quite a big number.、Right. It's quite a big number. <laughs> even more than you pay for a cockapoo puppy in these、um, in these inflationary times. <laughs> But so, just explain this to me. All right, this is a complete sort of novice about this. The Bank of England is it buying our debt, our national debt? Is it printing money to cover the national debt? And if it is. What is there to stop it going on printing that money? And does it really matter? You know, it's a slightly where it seems to be in an all bets are off now、uh, stage, don't we? The Bank of England isn't printing physical banknotes. Most money in the world isn't physical banknotes. Most money in the world is bank balances. And what the Bank of England is doing is via computer strokes, literally on a screen. It's creating extra spending power for the Bank of England that that is then using to buy government debt in the market, in the gilts market, if you like. And because the Bank of England is in there buying government debt, that means the price of the debt goes up, the yield on the debt, the amount that the government has to pay to service the debt goes to the floor. Everyone else in the market for gilts knows that the Bank of England is going to be in there buying like crazy. So that basically rigs the gilt market. And as long as the government Keeps doing this quantitative easing, then borrowing costs will remain low. That doesn't mean that financial investors have made a judgment about the solvency of the UK.、Mm. It means that they understand that the Bank of England currently dominates the gilts market. So when people in our political and media class keep saying, "Oh, it's fine. People want to lend to the Bank of England at these low rates," that's not true. What's happening is that the Bank of England's massive presence in the gilt market is enormously influencing. The price of that debt. There's no what we call what economists call price discovery going on. We don't know what's going to happen to the price of government debt, the yield on it, the amount of in- debt interest they, that we have to pay, that taxpayers have to fund by taking on more debt without the Bank of England in the gilts market. That's the really scary thing, and that's why I called in many Telegraph columns、mm. for Sunak to. Be open and honest about this. I know he understands this stuff. He's an extremely financially literate man. I, I doubt that many other people in the cabinet do, to be honest, but he does, and I know that a lot of people at the Treasury do. They're starting to just 
nudge into the real world by saying, oh, if interest rates go up by a whole percentage point, mm. what we call 100 basis points, then you're, that will cost an extra £25 billion of debt interest. Actually, that's what the Treasury says. The IFS, the Independent Institute for Fiscal Studies, says it's more like £40 billion. Interesting difference between the two of them. So we are very, very susceptible, Alison, to a rise in inflation, which will increase the cost of government debt, the, the, the yield that the government will have to pay, and also we're susceptible to a rise in interest rates. And financial markets are now starting to price in whatever the government says, whatever the Bank of England says. Mm. The financial markets are now starting to price in higher yields on government debt, higher inflation. And it doesn't matter what Rishi Sunak says at the dispatch box. It doesn't matter what the Bank of England says or does. If the market determines that beyond QE, the cost of government borrowing goes up, then it goes up. Mm. This is not a decision that's in the government's hands. This is a real-world outcome that is imposed on the government and all of us. And this all sounds like gobbledygook. I would totally understand it's difficult for people to get their heads around. But just look but look back in history. You know, if this stuff worked, then the Roman Empire wouldn't have fallen. You know, you wouldn't have Weimar Germany. Zimbabwe would be in the G7, you know. It doesn't <laughs> work to keep printing money effectively creating money to buy up effectively your own debt. And we are now in the danger zone. And now is the time to start talking openly and honestly about it. Because guess what? The UK does have, in relative terms, a good story to tell. We're a very open, dynamic economy, full of entrepreneurs, mm. full of investment ideas, full of credibility, full of educated, trained people who are ready and willing to work and generate wealth with an amazing vaccine story, of course. So when much of the world is doing this quantitative easing stuff uh, and currency markets, it's like an ugly baby contest, right? Yeah. Britain is unlikely to be the ugliest <laughs> baby. If you're zebras, you don't have to outrun the lion. You only have to outrun you know, the weakest zebra. <laughs> we're not going to be the mm. weakest zebra, but we have to be open and honest about what we're doing to start getting everyone's head around the fact that we are a credible well-managed economy. It's not good enough to just pretend that we're not doing what we clearly are. Well, because you have trained me up so well these last few months, I did notice that aside in Rishi's speech where he said, didn't he, interest rates may not stay low. Just yeah. one percentage point would cost yeah. us another £25 billion. Pounds. I mean, of course, amidst the blizzard of giving away on restock grants and self-employed grants and 100% business rates holidays, these things are all a bit of a blur, aren't they? But I did remember you saying to me and to listeners that the markets are all right as long as the markets are all right, and then suddenly they're not. So, so tell me what's a bad case scenario if... We're not the ugliest baby in the contest, but what if they start to, could they panic? Could interest rates go up? I mean, if we're suddenly paying 40 billion interest a year, if it goes up one percentage point, could it go up two percentage points? My fear is that financial markets, the rope can slip and they can they can go beyond the control of policymakers. And this happens throughout history and it happens relatively infrequently throughout history. But, you know, in my life as a journalist, we've had a lot of financial crises. There's no cause and effect there, I hope. But, you know, we had a big financial crisis at the end of the dot-com boom. We had, obviously, a big financial crisis with the collapse of Lehman. Another one is kind of on the cards at some stage now when you look at how overinflated stock markets and bond markets are. And if you have, like, you know, financial crises every 10 years for 30 years, the general mm. population starts to think, these clever people that are meant to be have all this stuff in hand, they're not particularly clever, are they? It leads to much more political radicalism and extremism. That's what history shows. And I'm worried that we're creating a situation where inflation is going to start ticking up with all this massive government spending that's happening. The economy will struggle to respond. You've got oil prices now, which are back to pre-pandemic levels. And the impact of those in the headline inflation indices is about to come 
on stream, if you like. You know, inflation of 2 or 3% a year is just fine. You know, it doesn't undermine investment decisions. It can erode the real post-inflation value of debts a little bit. But it's very hard to keep inflation at 2 or 3%. Suddenly, those inflation expectations get into the system. They get into the supply chain. You have 7 8 9% inflation, the kind of inflation that we grew up with, Alison. Mm. And that's when investment starts stalling. And that's when you start to get big problems with growth. But I suppose what I would say to him now is it struck me that, you know, what's he supposed to do? What's the chancellor supposed to do? We are in a kind of wartime situation. You and I have been very latterly very sceptical about the lockdown increasingly as the pain and the damage outweighs the the health costs. But, you know, we are where we are. But for him to go on with this paternalistic, we've got our arms around you, whatever it takes – People are being bought off with their own money, aren't they? It's 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 our children's money. It's our grandchildren's money. It may be our great-grandchildren's money. It's not true that the government is out of the kindness of its heart giving people money. There's a lot of covering up the damage. And I'm wondering, are they kicking it down the road? Do they not want to pull the plaster off now? Would they rather the three million unemployed came a bit later in the year? Or, or am I being too cynical? No, I don't think you're being too cynical. I mean... You you pay for massive debts by a combination of tax rises, spending lower than it otherwise would have been, and inflation. And you you handle all that by hopefully growing the economy so you don't have Mm. a debt crisis because you can still generate enough revenue to pay the interest on the debt. So we will pay for it one way or another. I think you and I, we both completely accepted the lockdown. Mm. You know, when we started Planet Normal in May, we were absolutely in line with where the government was. I think what's happened is because they have relied on the magic money tree, if you like, because the political class, even in the Conservative Party, have got it into their head, most of them, that they can just keep spending with no consequence because the Bank of England can keep buying these gilts and then not mentioning them in a budget speech Mm. or even in the body of the text of the budget document, as if no one's going to notice That's what we call a soft budget constraint. That leads to really bad decision-making because there's no kind of grit in the oyster. That The budget constraint never has any implications on the discussion about what we should do. And when you have discussions that don't involve economics, they end up being ridiculous discussions. Imagine being a business and trying to make decisions without the finance director in the room. That It would be completely mad. Mm. And that's the situation we're in. Of course, he does need to keep spending to support the economy because we are still in lockdown. Mm. In my view, if we didn't have this soft budget constraint, if we hadn't massively relied on QE, then we would have had a much more, frankly, open, honest and grown-up discussion about how long lockdown should have gone on. I think lockdown has been prolonged precisely because there hasn't been a real-world economic constraint there Mm. because we've convinced ourselves we can just keep racking up all these enormous debts. And that's what we've just seen in this budget. He's extended furlough, as you rightly said, all the way to September, even though they're saying that lockdown will end by summer at the latest. To be fair, isn't that to give businesses a chance? People aren't coming out of the starting blocks like, you know, some 100 metre runner. There's going to be a period, isn't there, as businesses have to wind themselves up, coiled up and spring out. So is that money from June to September? Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Is that to stop businesses who might just sack people immediately, furlough ends? Is that to make them think twice or, you know, again, about getting rid of people? Is not is it an incentive, basically, to get people to give more employees a go for a while? Isn't that what it's about? I, I think it is. Again, we've highlighted, haven't we, on Planet Normal quite a lot, the dangers of much, much higher unemployment. But he also combined that, and this, this concerns me, he combined the measures to extend furlough with a so-called a sort of super deductible investment scheme mm. where if, if firms buy machinery, then they can deduct 130% of the value of that machinery from their taxes, which is a very innovative thing. Yeah. And there's a lot to admire in that. It's an incredibly bold fiscal move. But if you think about it, Alison, what's that going to do to unemployment if suddenly everybody's turbocharging the mechanisation of their companies? I mean, Seems to me every supermarket in the country is going to completely dispense with all checkout staff, right? 
because they're getting massive tax-deductible benefits in order to install even more of those bleepy machines. That I don't know about you. I like I like talking to checkout staff, don't you? I think it's great. That's my main social life. <laughs> Fabulous jobs for people, often second earners in a family, often younger people, uh, women working part-time combining with childcare. Mm. It strikes me that this super-deductible tax regime is going to really speed up the removal of lots and lots of jobs. And I, I'm no Luddite, but is now really the time to, to do that when you've, you're facing an unemployment crisis? Can I ask you a personal question? What is a free port, Halligan? <laughs> well, th- I must say, I don't want to be completely down about this budget because there's a great deal in it that I do admire. I do have problems with the whole reliance on money printing, as, as I write about in The Telegraph yeah. often. But there is much to admire. Part of me admires the super deduction, as I've tried to say. I think he was quite canny on corporation tax. That's going up from 19 to 25%, but it's going up over a long period of time and there's a taper, so the full rate only comes in if you're a company that makes more than 250k a year. That's your profit, not your turnover. But come on, hang on. After, after Brexit, don't we want low corporation tax to attract all the inward investment? We do, but we do have to signal to financial markets that we understand we need to start getting our public finances back on track. And I think the good thing he's done with corporation tax, it will still be the lowest in the G7 when it's at 25%, up from 19 now. But the good thing he's done is that you only pay that 25 if you are a big company and your profit is more than a quarter of a million pounds a year. So a lot of small people in the gig economy, freelancers, they won't be affected by this increase. Mm. Only 10% of companies will pay this full rate. And then free ports, I think this is a fabulous thing that he's done, something that I've advocated for many years. You have, something, you have, Something you can only do properly outside the European Union, I'm afraid. It's areas, they aren't only ports, but they're enterprise zones. Some of them are in by the sea. And within these free ports, you have very, very easy planning regulations, lower taxes, hopefully lower corporation tax. You have uh, support to build infrastructure. And it's worth just outlining, Alison, quickly the list of where these free ports are. Mm. So we've got East Midlands Airport. We've got Felixstowe, of course, which is one of our biggest ports after Dover that really will benefit. We've got the Humber. Uh, we've got Liverpool. We've got Plymouth, the Solent, Thames, and then also Teesside, and I'm a big champion of Teesside, as you, you know. Are. And yes. not only has Teesside got its Freeport, and I know, you know, I saw some journalists, really sniffy business journalists, not the Telegraph, I have to say, oh, Freeports, how boring is that? Mm. Have these people ever been to these regions where mm. my phone lit up with people I know I've been working with on Teesside in my journalism the last four or five years? punching the air, saying, yeah, 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 we've got this Freeport. Absolutely fabulous. We're going to get some jobs going. Whatever sniffy metropolitan London journalists say. And then Teesside also got the new Treasury campus in Darlington, yes. which, again, is, a, is a, a small town with an enormous industrial heritage. <laughs> we've all learned about the Stockton to Darlington yes. Railway. Absolutely fabulous. Darlington is a seat that the Tories won for the first time in many, many years uh, at the last election, a red wall seat, if you like. Yeah. And let's just see if it really does influence decision-making in Whitehall when you've got these metropolitan mayors, you've got Andy Burnham and, and other mayors too. If you've got major parts of the civil service decision-making machine based outside London too, let's see if it doesn't make for a better regional policy and a less regionally imbalanced economy. Do you remember that? I don't know if it was an urban myth about when Peter Mandelson was a was an was an MP for North, wasn't he? And was, yeah, did, didn't he, didn't he ask for the Hartlepool? Yeah. Asked for the guacamole, and it was mushy peas. <laughs> so, so it'll be it'll be worth it if we can have a few Treasury mandarins from Q going. Do you, want, do you want a chip butty with that? You know, it'd be absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Just quickly, so he's not going to raise income tax, national insurance or VAT. And obviously he's not going to break that manifesto pledge, that's right. Not breaking that manifesto promise. And thank goodness that business rates holiday will continue because I've got friends with shops and small businesses and it's just, you know, they're just hanging on by their fingertips, really. So that's good. But he is freezing income tax thresholds, which should bring in about six billion a year. To the uneducated like me, what does that mean? You've spotted it, co-pilot. Velma is still with us. She's got her specs on because I think that is the really big story of this budget, so-called stealth taxes. Oh, did I spot it? Did I spot it by myself? You did. It's called fiscal drag. 
when you keep the threshold where it is and in periods of high inflation, as earnings go up in nominal terms, more and more people are dragged into taxation at basic rate of income tax, higher rates of income tax. By freezing these thresholds all the way to 26, 27, that is going to drag you know, about a million more people into income tax, low-income earners. That's a complete reversal mm. of what the coalition government did from 2010 when they raised, if you like, the starting rate of tax yeah. by raising the threshold. By freezing the threshold, it actually is lowering it as inflation comes through the system, and we are in for a bit of inflation, I think. That's one of his main revenue-raising measures in this budget. The headlines, I think, will be all about stealth taxes with more people mm being taxed. For me, that was one of the downsides of this budget. In the end, Alison, though, the biggest economic policy boost that we can do is ending the lockdown. Mm. And I think with all this extra borrowing that we're seeing and with the incredible collapse in COVID cases and deaths and hospitalizations that I mentioned at the top of the show, I do think Boris is going to come under a lot more pressure in the coming weeks. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, as you said at the top, 21 million people vaccinated. Nadim Zahawi's just said in March they hope to double the number of people vaccinated in the next month, including me. But I think we should just have just a brief mention from George. Yeah, so just to say, George is a senior source within NHS England. We don't say who George is. We don't disclose mm-hmm. his or her identity. They have full access to the internal NHS England data. We're very confident of the authenticity of George's statistics. That's why Alison reports them. But by definition, we report them as claims because we can't independently verify the numbers because by definition, they're not yet published. That's right. And George did send us an absolutely jubilant email this week, Liam. We just went below the 10,000 bed occupancy mark. Fantastic. Down from 31,500 at the peak. And that is a 65% reduction in six weeks. Can I just make this clear to you, Liam, and to all the Planet Normal listeners? Now, only 10% of all beds in hospitals in England are occupied by COVID patients. And the patients in intensive care, just under 2,000 now, compared with 4,000 a month ago. And the admissions are lower, quite considerably lower, less than half of the hospital discharges. And George says the rate of decline of COVID inpatients has been pretty extraordinary. When you look at the decline last May, it was a much more gradual drop-off. This time it has been consistently falling by over 20% each week for the past five consecutive weeks. So as you said, Liam, I think we are going to have to seriously ask within a month, are we really going to be in full lockdown? Hello, former England hooker Brian Moore here. Well, the Six Nations is back and so is my podcast, Brian Moore's Full Contact. Each week we will get the biggest and best names from the world of rugby to dive into every Rook, Mall, and TMO decision. You can't nab a front row seat this year, but with our podcast you don't need to. So just search for Brian Moore's Full Contact on your podcast app, hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss it. Last week's Planet Normal guest was Michael Grade. The former TV boss gave a fabulous interview, letting us know why he thought mainstream news programmes were doing a bad job. Too much gotcha questioning, too much blame culture, not enough analysis, explanation and context. This week, Alison, we invited another special guest to Planet Normal, a widely respected businesswoman, well-versed in the worlds of both heritage and Hollywood, but with bags of hands-on, day-to-day business and management experience. Yes, Liam, as we know, businesses small and large have really taken a pounding. And I was very intrigued to learn about what was going on at Highclere Castle, better known to most of us as Downton Abbey. We all think of it as, you know, spectacular, rich people, beautiful castle. But like everywhere else, Highclere has been really damaged by the lockdown, and it has this got this irrepressible Chatelain, uh, Lady Carnarvon, Fiona, who runs the business there with the eighth Earl, Geordie, her husband. And it was such a beautiful weekend, wasn't it, Liam? Absolutely the, you know, harbinger of spring over the weekend with Boris's crocuses of hope were poking through. So 
<laughs> the crocus of hope. <laughs> the crocus of hope. Can I just say, because you're too modest, you're not really, but you're pretending to be modest. So Lady Carnarvon is actually a big fan of your writing and that's how you landed the interview, right? <laughs> well, I'm I'm a big fan of her castle, so it's a, it's it's mutual. And I thought she was going to be such good value. And I, I began by asking her after such a beautiful weekend, what were her feelings at being unable to open her business? It makes me feel pretty sad, actually. And, you know, I felt cast down in the doldrums, which is what led me to ask for the evidence that it's more dangerous to walk around Highclere Castle than it is to go around a non-essential shop. I'm not asking for handouts or saying, poor me. I'm just saying we would love to be part of the solution to build back better rather than not be allowed to be part of the evolution going forwards. And presumably missing out on the Easter trade is another huge thing for you after a really difficult year. It is, Alison. It's a hugely difficult thing because actually much of our money from this April were transfers from last April. So again, we're transferring forward again, or vouchering or refunding. It's a mix of all of them. And as we're going forwards again, it means when we do open, we're not actually bringing any money. So we're simply trying to pedal to stand still. We're just one of the leisure, hospitality, heritage businesses. And in some ways that forms the backbone of the culture of the country. We often form backdrops for the music and the acting and the the Mm. film, of course, which is made in this country. We regard ourselves as quite an essential part of it. And given that 80% of this country is service business, and 80% of every international tourist comes to see a castle or stately home or heritage part of our of our country. Please, again, I would suppose I'm just saying um, we're not completely insignificant and we are huge employers for people who don't have a huge amount of money and we're all inching forward and breathing in. And I think for everybody, May the 17th was was quite a frightening date because it's going to take us weeks to turn the propellers uh, without even earning any money before we get back up. It's a long, slow startup. Nothing, you don't go to 100% overnight. <laughs> We're going to go 10, 20, 30 with, with safety and care and, and go forwards in that way, as will every other business. One thing, Fiona, that completely baffles me, you know, we've all watched with huge pleasure Downton Abbey. And seeing that social distancing was going on at Highclere Castle in the drawing room back in 1921. I mean, you had Lady Mary on one side of the fireplace and Lord Grantham at least eight feet away on the other side of the fireplace. I mean, surely Highclere must be one of the easiest places to make COVID secure for visitors. We all, in hospitality, leisure and heritage, invested a lot of money last June, in our case, to make sure we were markedly COVID secure. We had all the protocols Mm. in place. We still do. And we're still expecting to use them to give confidence to our guests when they're allowed to come. And and I think I was just a little bit baffled from a pragmatic point of view as to why when we have a 400 metre one-way tour in the house, we ask people to wear masks. Everyone has been amazing. All of our guides have actually been vaccinated because they were probably vaccinated in January. <laughs> that's slightly older. That's that's rather a unique selling point, isn't it? As you can say, you know, but, come come to Highclere Castle. Everyone's vaccinated. So you know, I think a lot of our guests will be vaccinated as well. Yes. But nevertheless, it's an environment in which we can continue to offers space and safety and I think that is important and and perhaps the more dangerous places if you like are in each other's homes when you just think I am desperate I've got to have a cup of coffee with a girlfriend before I go completely Mm. mad and that is Mm. possibly less organized rather than coming out and sitting apart from each other outside on the lawns having a takeaway cup of coffee so I'm not and none of us are you know making light of what we've been through at all, putting that to one side, we we have to move on. And the other side of that is is jobs. And we've crashed the economy. And it's a question of how badly scarred it is, you know, how much we'll actually resurrect. And the longer it's left, it's the scarring is that much deeper. And in order for people's mental health and well-being, we all 
we all want to be part of it, Alison. You know, we want to be part of the solution. Mm. I completely understand. We want to build back better. And, you know, we're everybody in hospitality and heritage is 100% with the government in that. And we, you know, we're hugely grateful again for the support. But we want to be part of the solution rather than receiving some handouts which which will not necessarily save some of the businesses which might be saved if in some ways they were allowed to open a little. You were one of several stately homeowners who signed this powerful open letter urging the government to keep the reopening of indoor heritage attractions under close review. The letter said historic houses have demonstrated their ability to manage access and risk. Obviously, the numbers are going the right way now. Is it your hope that they could bring it forward from May the 17th, which is incredibly late into the season? And as you said, we'll see a lot of these people go under. If the data and evidence were were reviewed and it were possible to be open earlier, I think we'd all be very grateful. Whether we say they'd prefer us to keep at 50% of the numbers or four metres apart, Mm. I don't think any of us really mind. To lose the whole of April as well as the whole of March, and we've also lost Valentine's Mm. Day and Mother's Day, Mm. is quite devastating. So the answer is our turnover last year was probably 25% or 20% of the previous year, which is fairly catastrophic for any business. And we were able to sort of breathe in and refinance such as we could and what we could sell. And then again, we've done it again through the first part of this year. And now we're sort of yet again, trying to go out there and you know, extend our credit lines like every other business. Mm. You spend a lot of time on the admin side and everything else trying to figure out what the best options are. And it's definitely going to take us at at least five years to come back to 2019 levels of stability. And our loans we've taken out are more like 15 years. So George and I are going to be definitely grey. I'll be able to go to the hairdresser, so that's fine. Being serious for a moment, people don't think about it very often, but somewhere like somewhere like Highclere is um, is the sort of centre of an ecosystem, isn't it? You've got so many people dependent on the, the the safe and the successful running of the house. So you've got you're a farm, you've got local tradespeople, local suppliers. I mean, just to give people an idea, how many people do you employ, and how many staff have you furloughed? Well, in the summer, we employ a lot of full and part-time staff. So we're a big hospitality employer like other, well, we're a very small business. But for the local area, we're a bigger employer of of youngsters out of college, out of university. Mm. It gets them Mm. going into a teamwork. Louis, who is both butler and banqueting manager, is fantastic at, you know, building the team spirit. They all learn a lot about customer service. It's a great skill set. It's They're lovely to work with. So this is local youngsters who have been entirely abandoned over the last year and a mm. bit. There's the older guides and the people who are drawing a pension. It's quite important extra money to them to do the nice things in life. There's the suppliers from whom we buy food or for the gift shop. And we try to buy British Um, It's a really challenging situation for them at the moment because no heritage gift shop, nothing like that is buying any product. We've all got leftover product from ages ago and that's all going to, our stock is then going to go forward, not sadly be used in the spring so we can reorder, but it won't be, be sold through until much later in the year. So there are so many um, interconnected chains, Alison, where the supply lines are. Mm. We've kept on some of the tradesmen who fell outside the furlough. There were a lot of people who fell outside the furlough. Plasterer, electrician. Electrician actually were furloughed, but they're now taking themselves out because I've I got some work for them. All the um, actors and actresses who we gave small bits of yes. work to when we could over the summer to entertain people. A lot of people fell outside. I can't tell you why. And they, they didn't want to fall outside. But it's possibly more important to give them a little bit of work and follow some of the other team here because then everybody can try and survive, buy their food and pay their mortgages. So we've sort of taken pragmatic views. I've also sort of tried to keep on people where they're living on their own 
and furlough the people who are living with other people so that the people on their own are not isolated and can come in. And I've just done a few things like that. On Planet Normal, we've heard from a lot of people working in the wedding industry, which I was amazed to discover, Fiona, is worth £14 billion to the UK. And they've had the most appalling time with no loans or support, plus, of course, total uncertainty about when they can start up again. What's been the situation with weddings at Highclere? We've had so many people in well, in dear and tears, basically, and tears twice over. And, you know, I was trying to answer an email this morning to a wedding couple who've had it had their wedding twice postponed. And also I try to share, because we have a bigger marketing platform, I try and share the future bookings around to local other venues near us. It's trying to protect a bigger area here than just high clear. So I'm not trying to take what business there is but to share the business out so i have lists of other ideas as well if we can't do that day because we've got a transfer coach party so yes it's i'm trying to help everybody locally where i can but it's uh yes it's time consuming what would you say to people who would say oh you know she's living in the castle she's incredibly rich what has she got to moan about How, how would you respond to that I'm not living in a castle. I'm running a heritage business with my husband. We're running a heritage and hospitality business. And you're trying to use your capital to create revenue and a leisure and tourist business which benefits the heritage of this country for which we're known and for the local businesses round and about. So it's not the correct thing. I think private people living in large houses on you know, because they've made a lot of money or whatever else is completely different from a heritage house which you're sharing nearly every day of the year. And the benefit of that is actually the visitors who come to see it. It's it's not a personal gain. And I think in some ways it um, sort of is where we should be going in a larger fashion with the far bigger challenge of climate change where we need to think and conserve and steward not just high clear, but far more of the country that and the planet that we live in for the future. And compared to COVID, I think climate change is really the big challenge facing us all for the next, you know, 30, 40 years. Obviously, Downton Abbey was hugely popular TV drama, lasted for six series ending in 2015. It it did make High Clear incredibly famous around the world. What effect did, did it have on the house's fortunes? And can you tell me about people come from all around the world, don't they, to see it? Yes, they have. It's been a central part of the plank of Britain is great. And I think, again, Britain is great and the campaigns to attract tourists um, have centred on the heritage business, whether it's Stonehenge or Blenheim or us or Windsor Castle or Hampton Court or Holyrood Palace. That is part of the Britain is great campaign and it's what is our visible USP in history. Very grateful for being part of the Downton Abbey journey. I don't think any of us expected it at all. (laughs) And... You know, it's been a huge help in terms of bringing visitors to Highclere. And from here again, we send them on. I create little suggestions of trails going down to Winchester, up to Oxford or down towards Bath and Stonehenge again to to spread the tourist pound around this southwest part of the country. And if they wish to go to Yorkshire, where Downton is set, please do. So again, it's again, trying to share, which I think is at the heart of what the heritage business tries to do. It shares layers of history and layers of experience to every visitor that it welcomes. So do you have people turning up from the Philippines and America expecting to meet Dowager Countess Grantham or or Mr. Carson, who's who's personally who I'd like I'd like to meet? Do people confuse the fact and fiction? They used to. They confuse it, I think, less today as it's gone on. They did originally, and I remember one American tourist visitor who came into the North Library and um, said to the guide, where are the photographs with Lord Grantham and the family and things like that? And, <laughs> and the guide said, well, that's the fictional Downton Abbey and actually it's the home of Lord Carnarvon and those are his family pictures. <laughs> and, and, and anyway, the, but the, the visitor just said to the guide how stupid she was and a few other choice epithets, actually. <laughs> and, um, and, um, and then just passed on, there's no point 
getting upset with it. And I truly don't mind. The guide was a bit upset because she was really proud of being a guide at Huntley Castle. But in a sense, it, it's what makes people happy, Alison, and that is, that is really lovely. And when you see people smiling and being happy, that is... That's good. Now, this is this is my favourite room of Fiona that you actually took to doing the hoovering yourself. And I, I know you've only got 300 rooms to hoover. So what were the results like of Lady Carnarvon's hoovering? Oh, I have to say, I've, I have hoovered many times. And I often used to hoover <laughs> up after weddings at sort of, you know, midnight. So I do know where all the hoovers are. But actually, I just decided it was entirely pointless. So because I'd have to hoover the same room in two weeks' time. So if I didn't hoover it to start with, I wouldn't have to hoover it until weeks time so I soon realized you soon realize what the priorities are so you switch out of that but I I write in a room on the top floor because I've also got a deadline on a book mm. I do have a hoover in that room because there's all these blooming flies which I can't bear so I'm always hoovering them up and attacking them like a dervish <laughs> finally if the uh, dowager countess grantham were among us what what would she say to the government about the future of Highclere castle downton what what instructions would the dowager countess deliver do you think? <laughs> my goodness i think the dowager countess and her generation would not be very happy with the inconsistency she was very direct and plain talking and straightforward mm-hmm. and i think she'd say which was my question what is the evidence but you know, having said that, I, I really understand that government are in a in a really challenging position. On the one hand, with the budget coming up, the Chancellor needs to inspire confidence. I'm sure we're all worried about taxes. We need to push for a positive stimulus, you know, to put the government forward and to save the economy, push that forward. And yet we've racked up all this debt. So um, I'm sure the Dowager Council would want to roll up her sleeves and say we want to be part of the Build Back Better. Alison, that was a fabulous interview. There's somebody who is trying to keep her business going, trying to do the right thing, trying to spread out the business that she's got around the local economy, mm. the region, trying to stand up for her sector, the heritage and hospitality sector, using her profile to poke the government in the ribs, get a headline. Good on her. What a fabulous interview. Well, she's so good-humoured. She's such a great laugh, isn't she? But there's a tragedy beneath that, Liam. Um, Fiona's had to make people redundant. I know she's been very, very upset about that. She has had sleepless nights. I think I think she's fully justified to ask the government, why can a, a small nail bar open at the beginning of April and High Clear Castle can't open until the middle of May, therefore missing out on one of its peak times of the year? I've also thought she made a really good point about the fact that many of her staff have been vaccinated lots of the patrons lots of the customers who'll come along you know will have been vaccinated so how on earth could it possibly be unsafe from your point of view Liam I thought it was also very interesting this idea that they're just going to be catching up on bookings so it's not like they're going to be making fresh money this year this is going to be honoring their debts and 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 tickets from last year isn't it that's right. And I think, yes, it's High Clear Castle. Yes, it's Downton Abbey. A lot of people will say, oh, she's in a ridiculously fortunate position. Mm. But she's not sitting on her laurels. She's speaking up for a sector, mm. the heritage sector and the hospitality sector as a whole, which, of course, has been absolutely hammered mm. during this lockdown. Lady Carnarvon spoke so eloquently about issues that impact people right up and down the income scale. Can we have two good good things as we um as we move towards our emails? Can we have two jolly things? Absolutely. Right. First of all, my former boyfriend, President Macron, <laughs> total total. I believe what they call in French, volte face, <laughs> this weekend from uh, Monsieur Macron, uh, who described our AstraZeneca vaccine, you remember Liam, as quasi-ineffective, and uh, now uh, authorising the use of the quasi-ineffective vaccine for people, including himself, from the age of 50. So I think that's England 5, France nil. And also on the topic of happy scores, you know, it was St David's Day this I week. I did indeed. You're going to start going on about the rugby again, aren't you? These will do we happiest, Liam. These will do we happiest. Yeah, well, I have to say that I was, uh, you know, obviously as a proud Welsh woman, we won the triple crown. You're only Welsh when they're winning. <laughs> <laughs> we had the wonderful young 
Josh Adams, Apple Cheeked, who was born in 1995. It's so wonderful that those of us who grew up watching J.P.R. Williams and Gareth Edwards and suddenly you see these... Steve Fennick. Fabulous, you know, and suddenly we've got Josh Adams born in 1995 and Liam Williams. But I I have to say, even I will admit that the best player on on the pitch was the French referee. He he did us proud, I thought. He, He won it for Wales, I think. Now onto our listener emails, selection of the wonderful, insightful, heartfelt and sometimes heartbreaking messages you send to myself and Liam at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love hearing from you and we, we share them and talk about them a lot between ourselves. Here's one that caught my eye, short and snappy, Liam, from someone who goes under the headline of architecture and molarity. Would narrowly avoiding the Brazilian variant be considered a close shave? <laughs> Boom, boom. (laughs) I like what you did there. (laughs) This is from Laura commenting on Michael Grade's interview. Lord Grade's rightly concerned about the lack of debate on television over the last year, says Laura. But to debate, to open up discussion, is to run the risk the public will not do as they're told, that there will be dissent. This is why the conspiracy theorists and anti-vax nutcases are useful idiots for the government. They provide ample opportunity to discredit anyone who questions government policy in a legitimate way. For instance, says Laura, where's the evidence for face masks in school all day? What are the harms done to children of this approach? Where's the debate on this policy? There's none. And it's depressing to see how cowed, frightened and ultimately unwilling most people now are to think for themselves. I speak, says Laura, as someone who has had the vaccine gladly and who agrees COVID is a serious respiratory illness. I should not have to qualify my comments by saying this, but one has to allow for rabid militants out there who want to shut down any debate or any discussion at all. Here's a very moving one, Liam, short but very moving, following on from Lady Carnarvon's reflections on her business. Elle says... Not a day goes by when I don't weep, Corona. Terrified of losing my home, remortgaged to keep our business afloat, always been very careful with money, but look after a grandchild full-time who's disabled. And my two older kids also earned their livelihoods from our business. We're sunk now. This small business army, this is what keeps Britain afloat. These are our people, Alison. These are the people that employ most other people in the country, the small and medium-sized enterprises. Is that that right? What's it worth? The small and medium-sized enterprises are two-thirds of UK GDP. Wow. They're absolutely massive. You know, business is not the Confederation of British Industry or the Institute of Directors. Businesses are small and medium-sized, often family-owned businesses who are trying to turn a profit, employing people locally who they've often known for years. They are the backbone of the British economy. And that's why you know, I worry that they have suffered disproportionately during lockdown. This is from Simon in New York. Hi, Liam and Alison. I'm a British expat and a planet normal addict. It's been a joy to hear the common sense and context on your podcast, both of which have been lacking from so much US media. One of the most fascinating aspects of the pandemic is how governors in various US states don't learn from each other. For example, California has imposed relatively tight restrictions, whereas Florida has not. And yet Florida's death rate per capita has been around 9% higher only than California, despite Florida having a much, much older population. A perfect example of different approaches would be Disney World. Disney World in Florida has been open for months and closed in California. Unemployment in California is now 9% and in Florida, it's 6%. Since December, most US states didn't impose any severe new lockdowns like in the UK. No curfews, no limits on how many people can come to your house. In most states, restaurants, shops, gyms and hairdressers were open, sometimes with capacity restrictions, sometimes not. Yet since the peak in January, our cases are now down 73% and hospitalizations are down 59%, similar to the UK. I'm sure the British government attributes that to lockdown and vaccines, of course, but the US didn't have a major lockdown since January and our vaccination programme is running behind the UK in per capita terms. To me, the great depressing lesson of COVID, says Simon, is how easily people have been manipulated by fear. Populations across the Western world have been bombarded relentlessly and have become truly 
frightened. The tragedy of COVID is that so much of the economic and societal damage was not caused by the disease itself, yes, a severe respiratory illness that's mainly a danger to the elderly, but from our response to the virus. Keep on keeping on with Planet Normal. Simon. That's really interesting, isn't it, Liam? I I think you probably saw this week that the governor of Texas has just opened everything up. That's it. He's just said we should all be still be being careful and taking the usual kind of precautions, but we're open for business. And I was really heartened by that. And as you said earlier, I'd like to see a bit more courage from here. Now, a few weeks ago, Liam, we... um, We had a lovely interview with Lucy, didn't we, an undergraduate at Durham University. And Lucy just wanted to update us. She says, I was really moved by last week's episode of Planet Normal, focusing a lot on the mental health of people of all generations. Some of the personal stories are heart-wrenching. Apparently, 27% of university students report a mental health issue during their studies. This year, I can only imagine what this number will be. And that's only the people that report it. I had the sad news that my graduation has been cancelled, despite it being in July, by which time statistically over 100% of the population should have had their first vaccine dose. It's such disappointing news. And it seems like an utterly ridiculous decision to have been made so early. I and a lot of my friends at uni are now of the opinion, well, what's the point of working really hard if the only celebration is opening an email with our £27,000 degree certificate attached as a PDF. I'm lucky that my master's graduation isn't until 2023, so God help us if we're not back to normal by then. Just thought I'd give you an update on my situation. Maybe see you and Liam on a park bench in a month or four. Thanks so much, Lucy, for that. Very sorry about the graduation. It seems total overreaction, doesn't it, Liam? It does indeed. This is from Wayne who's a farmer. Dear Alison and Liam, thank you for Planet Normal. I make a point of joining you every Thursday after I've finished feeding my sheep. Your common sense, straight talking and humorous banter are a breath of fresh air. I usually listen to you alone, but last week we had you on in the kitchen. My wife pointed out that you were speaking very quickly. I said you guys always speak quickly, with Velma (laughs) rattling through her statistics and Shaggy reeling off his economic commentary. On closer inspection... I've been playing your podcast at one and a half times the normal speed on my smartphone. Whoops in brackets. (laughs) When I reset this, I was relieved to find out that you don't actually sound like a couple of chipmunks on speed, which (laughs) I've been blissfully thinking was completely normal for the past few months. On a serious note, right, Swain, keep speaking up for those of us disillusioned with and distrusting our doom-mongering, sensationalist, mainstream broadcasters. I've switched them off completely. And I'm genuinely so angry at what they've done to the people of our great country, turning many formerly outgoing, confident and intelligent souls into gibbering wrecks, too scared to leave their house or breathe fresh air. Thank you both once again. I'll keep listening and telling everyone I know that life's so much better on Planet Normal. (laughs) I think we need to get a farmer on, don't you? We do. We do. Bring a lamb. Bring a lamb. Well, we've been talked this week about the use of producing variants out of a hat, Liam, haven't we, to uh, to distract everyone from the terrific good news and that we should rightly be celebrating. Anyway, Scarlett wrote in to say on the subject of variants, scariants is what we call them in our house. Brilliant, Scarlett. Nerve tag. <laughs> Nerve tag. <laughs> So that's it from Planet Normal for another week. Our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Alison and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is released between 11am and 12 noon. Do please leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. We've got so many fantastic reviews haven't we Liam and uh, we as I always say we they can't all be written by the Halligan cousins anyway so yes please leave us a review it does help others to find us helping the planet normal family to grow and as well as leaving us a fabulous review we have another favor to ask we're running a short survey to find out what you like about the Telegraph's podcasts and how we can improve them you can find the survey link in the notes to this episode It should take just a few minutes to complete and at the end you can enter a prize draw to win one of three £100 John Lewis gift vouchers. Alison, your temple of consumption. Oh, John Lewis bath towels department. That's my my (laughs) spit. 
No, I used to go to church, but, you know, then I went to John Lewis Bath Department. That's my thing. So as we speed away from our beloved planet normal, step away from the knobs and knockers, Alison, and the <laughs> madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Rhys Gunter, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett, our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.